Hi, I'm Mark Brody, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning and welcome to the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, how lawmakers came together to strike an all-important deal to fix our state's election calendar. And the Chiefs won yesterday's Super Bowl, but who won the battle of the ads? But first, the U.S. Supreme Court last week heard arguments in the case out of Colorado in which the 14th Amendment was cited as a reason to keep former President Trump off the ballot. That issue, albeit in a different form, will also be on the agenda in the Arizona legislature this week. With me now, as he is every Monday during the session to talk about what to expect this week at the state capitol, is Howie Fisher of Capital Media Services. Good morning, Howie. Good morning. I finally recovered from the big game, the Puppy Bowl. I know that was on the top of your to-do list yesterday. So what's going on with the 14th Amendment? Why are state lawmakers going to be talking about that this week? Well, obviously, there are some folks who are very concerned about what happened in Colorado. And we can certainly wonder whether the U.S. Supreme Court will uphold what Colorado did in terms of kicking the president off the ballot. This legislation sponsored by Republicans would say if – Essentially, say you can't kick a president off the ballot if you're the party's nominee. The Fourteenth Amendment does not apply. Now, whether a state statute overcomes the U.S. Constitution is an interesting question, but it is a political statement to say we're not going to allow our courts to go there. Now, there hasn't really been a problem. In fact, is the only challenge that was made was by a guy who was trying to run on the Republican Party, name of John Castro who went to federal court and a federal judge threw it out and said, you're not even a serious candidate. You're not standing to sue. So we may be solving a problem that doesn't exist, but again, we're at the Arizona legislature. Yeah, it's something that that they sometimes do down at the Capitol. Howie, let me ask you about something that I think a problem that a lot of folks maybe have dealt with in the past in terms of driving on the freeway, and maybe you're in the the fast lane, as the Eagles taught us about uh, in the left lane, and you're stuck behind someone who just won't move over and just doesn't go as fast as you want them to. The state lawmaker thinks there ought to be a law about that. Well, it's either that or putting a battering ram on the front of your car, but uh, (laughs) leaving that aside, it is already a violation of law to drive slow in the fast lane if, in fact, you can drive in in the right lane. But Senator David Gowan, apparently on his trip up from Sierra Vista, probably on that two-lane stretch of I-10 they keep hoping to widen, was stuck behind somebody. So he has a bill to actually put in a $250 fine for anybody who is traveling slow in the fast lane. Now, does this solve the problem? Again, it is already a violation of law. Do I see the DPS out there saying, oh, we're going to trap those people, given everything else going on and traffic? No, but again, it's one of those feel-good bills. See, we, we've solved the problem here, you know, for all of you, and we can go home and get reelected because we've made it a, a, a big fine to travel slow in the fast lane. All right. So those two bills are coming up today. Tomorrow, Howie, there's going to be kind of what's become a bit of an annual tradition at the at the legislature in terms of trying to break up Maricopa County into several smaller counties. Oh, my God. This has been going on probably since Maricopa County was formed. There were only four counties at the time. We're now up to 15. There's some interesting questions there. At what point? There's a county that has something like 76% of the population of the state, and that's about 7.4 million, become too big to govern. Now, 
depends on who you talk to. Board of Supervisors will tell you we're doing just fine. You know, we have, you know, different committees. We can you know, figure out what's going on. But you have supervisory districts that in some cases are larger than congressional districts in terms of how many people you have to represent. So the idea is, well, maybe if we had four separate counties and we'll figure out a way of doing it. Now, there's some logistical issues in there. We have county bonds. We have things like the community college district. I suppose they can all put together. You have uh, planning. But the other piece of it may be political. I can't help but believe that some of the people who want a four counties to say, hey, there's another supervisor seat I can wake up. Uh, uh, I can opt into. I mean, right now we've got five supervisors. We can have 20 supervisors. Now, is that smaller government? You know, hard to say, but we're also talking about creating, you know, four different county transportation departments and four different county environmental departments. And the logistics of it become an issue. And then, of course, as we were talking about, you know, is this really smaller government? Are we doing better? Because there are certain things that maybe you're better off consolidating. This is the same group of lawmakers say we should consolidate school districts because it's more efficient and we do not need more bureaucrats. Well, so Howie, in the past, the the current Maricopa County has not been a, a huge fan of this proposal. Are they still not huge fans of this proposal? Oh, I think that they're saying, you know, it isn't broke, don't fix it. They don't believe it's broken. Now, could some of them be talked into it? Possibly. But I also think that some of them believe that this is being pushed by some of the same folks who insist that Maricopa County itself is broken because of the way they run elections. Remember, we're still litigating not only the 2022 election, in some ways we're still litigating the 2020 election. Mm. And there are folks in there who I think believe that if you had a different elections department, perhaps for the new East Valley County, whatever it's going to be called, Red Mountain or Hohokam, that they could do a better job. So there's a lot of politics behind this. All right. That is Howie Fisher of Capital Media Services. Howie, as always, thank you. You're you're welcome. Arizona lawmakers came together in rare bipartisan fashion last week to fix what could have been a major problem in our state's election timeline. The big solution? To move the state's primary election up by a week to July 30th, among other smaller changes. Jen Fifield of VoteBeat covered it all and joins us now to explain what happened and what it means for voters. Good morning to you, Jen. Good morning. Good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on. Okay, so this had to happen to make sure basically that Arizona's votes were counted in the upcoming election. And it had to happen like right when it happened by last Thursday or the counties would have run out of time, essentially. It sounds like lawmakers really came down to the wire on this, Jen. Oh, they absolutely did. It was making everybody sweat. Uh, There are a few points in the week that I don't think people thought they would get this compromise. As you know, the Republican-controlled legislature hasn't been able to get anything by Governor Hobbs related to elections. So it was really uh, last-minute negotiations. Yeah. Okay. And we'll talk more about what those negotiations looked like in just a moment. But give us first the, the fixes. They're moving the primary up by a week. What else did they come to an agreement on to fix this problem? Yes, we will have a July primary for the first time, July 30th. That's only temporary for this year. That's uh, something voters should know. Voters should also know that the signature on their mail-in ballot and the phone number on their mail-in ballot are super important in this year and the next few years as they make some changes to how mail-in ballots are processed. 
Okay, so remind us why this election calendar needed fixing really quickly. Like, this could have been really bad if lawmakers hadn't done something last week. Right. Well, because of a new recount law that we passed in 2022, we're going to have a recount in Maricopa County at least after every election, which squishes the time frame for people, for election workers to get all that work done before the general election. So they they don't have any time to proof ballots. They just didn't have time. Military and overseas ballots were going to be late if they didn't fix this and get the compress the schedule by 17 to 19 days. Uh, we weren't going to be able to send our presidential lectures to Congress on time because of this long recount process that took three weeks in 2022. Yeah, it takes a long time. Okay, so leading up to the deadline before them last week, it really seemed like our Democratic governor and the Republicans in the ledge were not agreeing here on what the fixes should be. How did they come together on this? Like, it seems like from your reporting, there were midnight negotiations, very angry lawmakers. It was tense. It was very tense. Uh, It was actually very comforting for me to see them working together, though, even though they weren't having a good time of it. Um, Mm. Because, you know, for so long, it has been unwillingness to even talk about um, where they're, uh, you know, where they draw a line on certain issues. And that really uh, amplified that this week. So now we know, for example, um, we're going to have better standards for verifying our signatures on our ballot. And this is in law now. This is something that Katie Hobbs vetoed last year and in the legislature. And she was willing to compromise based on, it looks like adding a few more lines into the language to clarify what what it is actually going to do. So that's one example. The temporary nature of the fix for 2024 is another one uh, making another fix temporary. uh, there There were lots of those small tweaks at the end. So the fact that a lot of these changes are temporary, what does that mean down the road? Like, are we going to have to come to these negotiations again next time around? We are. In fact, uh, the county association executive director, Jen Marson, told me there is going to be more work to do in 2026, or they're at least going to be pushing again the county officials for a long-term fix. Because we have the primary settled for this year, we have the presidential election settled for this year. But then again, in 2028, we're going to have another presidential election where the timeline is going to be back to having to have this long-term solution. Okay, so it sounds like a lot of the the debate between lawmakers, a lot of the negotiations centered around the curing period. Tell us what changed there and, and what that means. Oh, you want to go in the weeds, huh? <laughs> let's let's go there. Okay, so you have five calendar days to, if there's a problem with the signature on your ballot, they're not sure if it's yours or not, they're going to call or text or uh, send you a letter even if they don't have your phone number. That's why that phone number is so important on your ballot. Mm-hmm. Um, you have five days to get back to them. This used to be business days ending on like a Tuesday, and now it's going to be calendar days Um, ending on the weekend, most likely. And so that was a big negotiation. They did add in a few things that made people more comfortable, Democrats more comfortable, so it won't hurt voters as much. And one of those is that temporary thing where this ends after 2026. And it sounds like some of the the, the concerns from Democrats were about about tribal voters, right? Right. um, uh, Gabriella Cesares Kelly in Pima County, said that she was really concerned about her rural and tribal voters. It takes mail a long time to get there. Say they don't have their phone number. Um, they might not have Wi-Fi or uh, access to public to public transportation on those last crucial days on the weekend. Mm. Okay, so how are the counties reacting to this? They're the ones who have been sort of sounding the alarm about this for quite some time now. Are they relieved? 
Um, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> this is something that they they want to be able to do their job and do it well, and they want to not make mistakes as well. Having that really tight timeline where they didn't have they would be you know working midnight, they might not even be able to do it. That was really stressing them out. Hmm. All right. So, final question for you then, then Jen is about the context here. Like all of this comes amidst a much bigger debate going on here and around the country about voting, about elections, about election denialism, attempts to change elections law on one side, worries about protecting disenfranchised disenfranchised voters on the other side. Give us a sense of how all of that kind of tension played into this debate. Well, you had Republicans seeing an opening for the first time in a few years to really uh, push through some changes, such as that signature verification standards they wanted in there Mm -hmm. and a few other things. They saw this as their chance to negotiate. I think that's what really, um, really caught it up in the last week where they were trying to push things and, and the Democrats were trying to make sure that they didn't put something in this bill that they've been trying to prevent for years just because the Democrats wanted this to happen. All right. We'll leave it there. That is Jen Fifield joining us from Vote Beat. She covered it all. Jen, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good morning. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, the rise of workwear. We're seeing jumpsuits, we're seeing cargo pockets, we're seeing different types of items that really started in the work world. Why people are gravitating toward utilitarian fashion. But first, yesterday's Super Bowl created a lot of drama on the field as the Kansas City Chiefs came back to beat the San Francisco 49ers in overtime. There was also drama in the stands as many viewers eagerly awaited every shot of Taylor Swift cheering for the eventual victors. But we all know the Super Bowl is about more than just football. It's also about what's happening on TV when the game isn't actually being played. I'm Michael Sarah, and human skin is my passion, which is why I developed this. Sarah V. Oh, you didn't know? Can skin truly be this moisturized? Oh. Yeah. Wow. I just love having a blast. A Mountain Dew Baja blast. Kids party? Having a blast. Stuck in an elevator? Having a blast. Getting abducted by aliens? Having a blast. Don't, don't go away. My heart. Why you dunking me, girl? Why you dunking me? My heart. How do you like them donuts? I'm so sorry. You had to see it, but I forgive you. Lay us on the track. Are we going to be on the album? We talked about this. Let's go. You're blinded by them pinstripes. And with me now to break down some of the best and less successful Super Bowl ads is Tim Reister, founder and CEO of the firm. Reister, Tim, good morning. Good morning. I've got to say the the Dunkin' Donuts one, that line specifically that we just heard, how do you like them donuts? I'm so sorry. To me, that was one of my favorites. Uh, That was a wonderfully executed commercial featuring celebrities. And as as we all saw last night, many commercials featuring celebrities do not go that well. Right. So what to you stood out watching, you know, given what you do for a living and watching the, the ads as you did, what stood out to you? This Super Bowl was a much more wholesome presentation of advertisements than we've seen in recent years. And I think it it was a result of the the nature of, of society right now. Hmm. I think coming out of a pandemic and an energy crisis and inflation and now the conflict between Israel and Palestine and, and Hamas uh, has created so much discomfort and uncertainty in consumers that people are going selfward and 
retreating into their homes. The Super Bowl is one of those rare moments where you're with your family and friends. You're doing something that's purely based on enjoyment. And as a result, we saw advertisers who understand that, comfort food advertisers or comfort providers coming in and bringing a lighter part of America back to consumers. Which and specifically to you sort of play that out? Which to you were, were emblematic of that kind of thing? Well, one of my favorites was Lint Chocolates, first, okay. first-time advertiser in the Super Bowl. And that's a product that just the moment you unwrap that beautiful little chocolate, you automatically feel better, even before <laughs> you put it in your mouth, right? And they use that Perry Como song, mm-hmm. the round, round, round. It was it was so beautifully crafted. It just made you feel good for a moment. And I, th- I think the Super Bowl is all about escapism, and advertisers like that really delivered. All right. So I mentioned Taylor Swift. She, of course, was in the stands after the game. A lot of people, at least some of the people I was with, were waiting to see when she would get on the field to you know, give Travis Kelsey a big hug and a kiss. Did her presence on TVs during the game and afterwards impact the way advertisers did their ads? It did. And in fact, Taylor Swift, I think, was the greatest benefit to the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 58. Um viewership of the NFL has gone up dramatically since she's become involved. A 53% increase in in teenage girls, a 34% increase in in women over the age of 35, just because of Taylor Swift. As a result, we saw more advertisers coming in with products targeting women and messages targeting women than we've ever seen in the past. There was one that stood out to me. I think it was a Dove soap ad talking about basically, I mean, the the cynical part would be if you use Dove soap, if you get knocked down as a female athlete, you'll be able to get back up. But I think the the point was that, you know, women athletes, girl athletes need need more encouragement. Like they need to, you know, Dove is there to support these athletes. In, In fact, yeah, Dove had a wonderful message in that it's not the hard knocks that prevent girls from continuing in sports. It's not that they're not tough enough. It's self-image. It's body Mm, image. And social media has made it so hard to be a teenage girl today. And their message, and and they did a pregame event that many people weren't talking about that deserves attention. Uh, Do you remember Steve Young, the retired quarterback from the 49ers? 49ers. He and his daughters partnered with Venus Williams, the retired tennis player. And they invited high school girls from all over the country to Las Vegas and they did a self-body image event with a flag football game uh, mm. at, at the stadium prior to the game. And I think that was just a wonderful move of Dove and putting their heart in the right place for girls. So you mentioned that there were, I mean, celebrities are often a big part of Super, Super Bowl ads. Which to you sort of fell flat? Because just having a, a famous person, famous face doesn't necessarily guarantee success. I think the worst commercial in the Super Bowl, and I was so disappointed about this, was for Drumstick. Drumstick is this iconic American brand. It's 95 years old, and it's never been in the Super Bowl. Mm. And they come in and they try to imitate. Do you remember that original Travelocity Gnome commercial? Yeah, yeah. They basically rip off the idea. They put this guy they call Dr. Umstick, and, and he's not animated. He's not activated. They don't use the, the celebrity um, comedian who they had cast in the role other than just to have him sit and cry on the airplane. It was so poorly done. I, I call that ad d- a dumbstick mm. instead of drumstick. It was, it was such a letdown. 
You mentioned you mentioned now two companies that were first timers in the Super Bowl. Was that something else you noticed? Were there a bunch of companies that had not previously advertised in the Super Bowl that that did this year? Nearly half of the advertisers were first timers. And another uh, commercial I loved from a first-time advertiser was Etsy. Mm. Um, Etsy, as you know, has always promoted these vintage items, and they wanted to promote this new gift-giving platform. And they did the ad, uh, this this period piece where the Statue of Liberty is coming in from from the French. Remember that? Into New York Harbor? God, it was so well done. And they're struggling trying to find out what to send back as a thank you gift yeah. because the French don't like anything. <laughs> and we sent them cheese. A cheese board, right? Yeah, through Etsy. And, of course, all of France just erupts in joy when the cheese arrives. <laughs> it was great. Okay, so which other celebrities? I mean, there's so many. There's you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito had a, had a cameo. We saw Christopher Walken, Martin Scorsese, Kate McKinnon, so many celebrities. A couple, did any stand out to you as being this is amazing or this they just shouldn't have done this? I think one of the best executions, in addition to the Duncan, the Dunkings we talked about, uh, was for Agent State Farm. Okay. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Hey, State Farm for decades has had like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's their, their yep. slogan. And they've been so disciplined in sticking with that. And to use Arnold Schwarzenegger and make fun of the fact that he can't say neighbor in an American accent, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and just to drill that over and over and over again in a commercial – and the way they, they teased that campaign on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon was brilliant. They hmm. were on the air almost a week prior to the Super Bowl and just hit it home with their pre-promotion with Arnold. It was wonderful. All right. We'll have to leave it there. That is Tim Reister, founder and CEO of the ad firm Reister. Tim, thanks for coming in. Thank you, Mark. The bipartisan immigration deal that fell apart in Washington last week would have made some major changes to our asylum process and funded the overwhelmed system in many ways that lawmakers on both sides of the aisle supported. But in the end, Republicans turned against the bill, spurred on by former President Donald Trump, and many on the left also condemned it. It was a political saga that has major implications for what happens next on our southern border, which is still in many ways in crisis. So what comes next? For more, I am joined this morning by Elvia Diaz, editorial page editor of the Arizona Republic, as well as columnist John Gabriel, who have different takes on what conspired last week. Good morning to you both. Good morning. All right. So, Elvia, I want to begin with you. You weren't exactly in support of this bill, I know, but not for the same reasons that many Republicans kind of killed it. Tell us, first of all, your take. Well, it it was a bipartisan bill, which was a legislation which was brokered in part by Senator Kirsten Sinema here from Arizona. And I didn't like it because the Democrats essentially gave everything that Republicans asked for, uh, something that a few years ago uh, the Democrats would have not even considered when it comes to immigration. You know, you have the president who promised immigration reform uh, when he was elected, uh, and now he was essentially saying, I'm going to agree to shut the border down. Those were exactly his words, uh, essentially shattered the asylum process. And a bunch of other things, you know, they would have increased tremendously the tension centers, they would have packed them with immigrants, the White House would have carried out mass deportations, which is something that Democrats don't talk about. So overall, he gave the House away. Um, And then, you know, it didn't happen. Mm. But you, in your latest column on this, 
road that that you thought it was sort of supposed to be that way, that Republicans were setting them up essentially? Well, yes, you know what I thought that that's, that's exactly what they what they wanted to do. You, they they asked for something that they believed that the Democrats would have not done it, um, and then you know the Democrats did it. So yes, my initial column was the Republicans set a trap for the Democrats for President Biden because clearly a a whole segment of the voting population is not happy with him now. I mean, even if it didn't happen, now we know what he's capable off, what what he's willing to give away. You know, he's not willing to stand up for his principles for to keep his word. So that's why I thought it was a, a setup. But, you know, a lot has happened since then. Mm-hmm. And now it seems that the Republicans are the ones who uh, set up the trap and fell into it themselves politically. All right. So, John, you, I know, are on the other side of the political spectrum here. Tell us, first of all, your take on on what conspired here. Yes, well, I, for one, am shocked that the Republicans uh, set themselves up and then failed. Um, Yeah, they um, are not very good at this legislating thing right now. And it was just strange to try to do these backroom deals. Mitch McConnell, uh, meeting with Schumer and uh, many other people, Senator Sinema and others, and uh, not getting buy-in from people on his own side. Um, I was not surprised when they were doing all these long meetings day after day and little leaks were coming out here and there, um, I kind of knew it was headed this way. Mm -hmm. Um, Even if it had made it through the Senate, we all know how dysfunctional the Republican House is. Right now, since they've been in the current House Speaker, um, whoever it is this week, (laughs) um, if he ever crosses maybe two very angry GOP congressmen or congresswomen, um, he will be booted. So the entire system right now is uh, very messed up, uh, very unstable. And I think they should really focus on smaller fixes rather than these grand bargains, uh, because you just don't have the strength anymore of straight party line voting. Um, all the various legislators in both houses are uh, very quick to uh, want to oppose anything that's even popular if it will get them a slot on Fox News. Hmm. So, Elvia, let's talk then about what John is starting to bring up there, which is this idea of fixes that could come next. Like there is a lot of political fallout from this, but there are now real problems at the border and in our border communities and for the number of migrants who are arriving every day that have no solution, really. Do you think anything will change? Like, is this going to be in a holding pattern, at least until after the election? It sounds like that's going to happen. It is most unfortunate. Yes, I mean, to begin with, they should have never, ever set this to have the immigration, the border security with money for Ukraine and Israel. So what can they do? Well, they can vote on, on the legislation separately for the money. They can vote for uh, border security separately if they want to. It's not going to happen because we know that uh, former President Donald Trump uh, derailed this whole thing because he didn't want anything to be done about the border because he wants to campaign on the issue. He said it himself. He's, it's it's not it's not a speculation. So it it is very unfortunate. The situation is real. The crisis is real. Uh, I mean, Biden can certainly do a lot of stuff himself without the Republicans to alleviate the situation here at the southern border. Border and the Republicans can begin by actually giving money for border security. 
John, what are but you? But it's not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> so, John, what do you mean when you're talking about small fixes there that that might go forward? Do you do you think that those are possible? I think they are. Uh, Representative Juan Cisco Mani uh, from down in the Tucson area. He has advanced just a small thing about uh, federal crimes and how we can uh, make small things on the border safer. Uh, there's been several very deadly and sad high-speed chases, uh, mostly in Texas, but I know Arizona has experience with those as well. And he has increased penalties on people who lead uh, those uh, chases, at least on our side of the border. And it's something that has gotten a lot of bipartisan support um, in the House. Many Democrats voted for it, and I believe uh, many Arizona Democrats voted for it. So I think if there's any small issues that can be advanced, I think that would be at least doing something. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there are people working. I will credit uh, Senator Sinema for trying to do something, but uh, I I think it's sort of these grand strategies, as Elvia said, tying it to Ukraine and tying it to Israel. How about just finding small issues that you can get, you know, I don't know, 51% of the people to agree on and sort of these grand strategies, because it seems like these omnibus bills always go to the 11th hour and at the last minute, um, if something looks like it's going to pass, you know that Trump is going to make a statement against it. Hmm. And then uh, people on the red side of the ledger will oppose it just overnight. Elvia, do you think those kinds of small fixes could be possible and and could make a difference at least in the in the interim? It could make a huge difference. It's not going to happen because of our political environment right now. Uh, no side is giving the other one an inch. And so politically, it's so toxic. I mean, John was talking, you know, the stuff that can be done, but that, that, that would only happen if there were reasonable people in Congress. And they're not. You know, they are at least enough people are crazy to not want to do anything about it and to derail everything. So it's not, it's, it's not going to happen, not this year. Uh, and, and the situation is getting worse at the border. All right, we'll leave it there. That is John Gabriel, columnist for the Arizona Republic, joining editorial page editor Elvia Diaz this morning. Thanks to you both. I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. Voters in Indonesia head to the polls this week on a very large scale. With me via Skype for our weekly look at some of the key global stories in the coming days is the BBC's Pete Ross in London. And Pete, what can you tell us about these elections? Well, first thing to say, Mark, is some of the figures involved in the elections that are going to be taking place in the world's third biggest democracy on Wednesday are staggering. Um, as I said, they're reckoned to be the world's largest single day elections with over 200 million eligible voters. Now, they're not just going to be voting for a president and a vice president, but people in Indonesia will be heading to the polls to decide on nearly 20,000 representatives to various national, provincial and district parliaments from a pool of a quarter of a million candidates. That is that is quite an event all taking place in just one day. The other thing to say is with its huge population and strategic position, I think Indonesia has all the right ingredients to make it one of the most influential countries in Asia. Um, Let me just take you through the runners and riders in this presidential race. 
Um, the incumbent president, jo Joko Widodo, he's known as jo Jokowi, um, he's constitutionally barred from seeking a third term. So the front runner in the race is Defence Minister Prabowo Subianto. He's a military man turned politician and he has the backing of the outgoing Widodo. Um, he's also the son-in-law of the former military man turned politician, President Suharto, who was the longest running uh, president in the country. He was in power for 32 years until he resigned following riots in 1998. Um, the two main rivals uh, is uh, a man called Anis Baswedan and Ganjur Pranowo. Now, they're, comp they're both former governors, but they've claimed in the run-up to this election that the rallies have been disrupted or cancelled by what they've called shadowy officials. So, uh, Critics or, or commentators in the region say that this points to an uncertain future for the country's fledgling democracy, depending who wins that election. Sure. All right. So from Indonesia now to Egypt, where uh, Turkey's President Erdogan will be arriving on Wednesday for a two-day visit. He'll be meeting his counterpart, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. Pete, what is likely to be on the agenda for discussion between these two? Well, the first thing to say is that the fact that these two leaders are meeting face to face and Erdogan is traveling to Egypt is big news in itself. Um, these two countries uh, have had very poor relations for over a decade now since the democratically elected uh, government of Mohamed Morsi, the Egyptian president, um, was toppled uh, following the Arab Spring in 2000, uh, you know, more than 10 years ago. Um, the Egyptian president, Morsi, he was the leader of something called the Muslim Brotherhood. Turkey support the Muslim Brotherhood um, and subsequently Egypt has classified that group as a terrorist organization. The two countries have also been at odds in regional conflicts over the last 10 years, taking opposite sides uh, in a war in Libya that ended with a fairly uneasy ceasefire in 2020. However, since then, relations seems to have improved. It kind of began with a landmark handshake between the two leaders at the Soccer World Cup in Qatar in 2022. And then last year, diplomatic relations were, were raised um, to the level of ambassadors in July. So now we have Erdogan, Turkey's president, visiting Morsi, uh, visiting Egypt, excuse me, for the first time since Morsi was overthrown. That in itself is big news. And you've asked me what they're going to be discussing, drones. Um, Turkey has recently sold drones to Egypt. There'll be other things to discuss as well, like getting aid into uh, Palestinians in Gaza and the generally the Israel-Hamas war. But I think right at the top of that agenda will be the business of drones. Interesting. I'll repeat, finally, the Munich Security Conference begins on Friday. It's an annual meeting. It's attended by uh, the world's defense and security elite. They'll have a lot to discuss, of course, not least of which the war in Gaza, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. What can we expect from this year's gathering? Yeah, it's sometimes known as the Davos of Defence, um, and it's going to take place in the southern in southern Germany from Friday to Sunday. Now, Mark, if we've been having this conversation on Friday, and you asked me about what might be on the agenda, well, you know, I think it would come as no surprise to your listeners that certainly, um, you know, on the eve of the two-year anniversary of the uh, in Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and almost four months since the start of the Israel-Hamas war, that those two conflicts would, would very much, you know, be top of the list for things to be discussed. However, 
that was uh, that that would have been on Friday, and I'm, those I you know those conflicts will still, of course, be important, and they will be on the agenda. However, following Donald Trump's Russia comments over the weekends, where some would say he gave uh, Russia's President Putin a free invitation to attack NATO allies in Europe if they weren't seen to be paying their way, their NATO fees, as it were. Well, I think that that, you know, is, is going to have shot to the top of any agenda and makes this annual conference, which is, you know, due to take place anyway, makes it all the more timely. So certainly Ukraine and Gaza will be on the list, but now it will be NATO, Europe, and, and what might happen if Donald Trump wins the, wins the White House in your upcoming election. Interesting. All right. That is the BBC's Pete Ross in London. Pete, good as always to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. If you pay attention to fashion or to what a whole lot of people around you are wearing, these days you'll probably notice workwear everywhere. Think Carhartt jackets, raw denim, dickies, jumpsuits. It's a trend that ta- that is taking over the fashion world. But it didn't start in fashion houses and trickle down to the masses. This is what our next guest calls a great example of trickle-up fashion. Danita Sewell is the director of the ASU Fitham Fashion Program and a professor there. She came into our studios recently to talk more about workwear and what it says about our current cultural and economic state. The trend is taking on a number of names. Workwear, utility style are just a couple of the most popular ones. But we're seeing jumpsuits, we're seeing cargo pockets, we're seeing patch pockets, we're seeing all these different variations of carpenter pants, khaki, jumpsuits, vest, um, different types of items that really started in the work world. Mm, yeah, like blue-collar workers, blue right? Blue-collar work world. A yes. lot of Carhartts, a lot of Dickies, things like that. Okay, okay. So is this new? Like, talk about where some of these items kind of originally came from. These have very, roots that go pretty far back in American history. They they do. They're icon products. And right now they're being reimagined in our times by fashion designers and brands who are seeing a cultural trend for an interest in very practical clothing, practical clothing that offers functionality, comfort, style. And a lot of these pieces actually transcend seasons as well. And I think it's that blend of comfort and style that has workwear as a leader in our post-COVID world. Yeah. So during COVID, I think of, you know, athleisure becoming the thing. And we were all wearing leggings and sweatpants and all that kind of stuff all the time. So you're saying this sort of is the next level of that? Yeah, it's comfortable, but it's it's a little bit more geared for outdoor life, mm-hmm. being outside of the house. And I also think there's a just a casual nature to dressing right now. Uh, You know, people were trying to predict what would happen after COVID ended. You know, was it going to be very dress up? But I think all in all, we're still transformed as a society. We're 
not all going into the office every day. Yeah. We have a blended life. And I think that this kind of casual clothing transcends that. Yeah, yeah. So if we're talking about the sort of fashion history of this workwear trend, we also have to talk about like the 1990s and and hip hop, right? Like a lot of this was big then. And we're also seeing a lot of 90s resurgence in fashion across the board right now, right? Absolutely. Hip hop style was very much about adapting uh, the Timberlands, uh, different items of clothing from this workwear world that became cool because mm-hmm. of their association with that uh, cultural movement and, and music. Yeah, yeah. Okay, there's also something that's so American about this, like uniquely American about this. What do you think this represents in terms of like American ideals? Well, if you look at one of the earliest items of workwear to trickle up, it's jeans. Sure. And that comes from the American miner. And that idea of the miner and hard work and its complete transformation as a garment of a heritage workwear into a fashion expression has probably happened the most in that. And it's really an American ideal. And America is where ready to wear really found its sea legs, where it blossomed. You know, Paris is known for the couture. America really developed the ready-to-wear system. And a lot of these workwear classics were born out of functionality of work, and they are rising up in in culture as these style icons when they're worn by style leaders. There's a very romantic image of working life a romantic association with authenticity, with credibility. And I think that culturally that is very much relevant to our times. Yeah. So there's a cultural aspect to this as well, and I'm not sure where this will land. But, like, there's something interesting about high fashion sort of taking on the look and the brands of blue-collar workers. Like, what does that say about how we're playing with class or how we even see class today? Mm -hmm. So the earliest theory of fashion was trickle down, Mm -hmm. where social class emulation would come from the upper classes to the middle classes to the lower classes. And then there's, you know, in our fast fashion world, we're looking at, at trickle across, where a style appears instantaneously across multiple price points. But the key one that we're looking at with this trend is trickle up, which begins in the lower class and it's copied up to the upper classes. And the textiles are often changed, the volume, the proportions. But this is a very interesting social phenomenon where the upper classes are taking on the ideals that are associated with these iconic items. Yeah. Their utility, their heritage, their style. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So final question for you then, because there are sort of cycles to these kinds of trends. Do you think you can predict what's going to come next if workwear is what we're doing now and athleisure is what led us here? (laughs) I think we're going to continue to see volume and comfort. I think people have become very 
nomadic and what technology is offering us today, this mobility to work, to be, to communicate from multiple locations is very appealing to people. Mm -hmm. And even though we're able to go back to work now, people still want a hybrid life. And I think that comfort and style, functionality, performance fabrics will only become more and more important as sustainability and comfort continue to be priorities for the consumer. At the same time, last week was Couture Week in Paris, Mm -hmm. and one of the hit shows was John Galliano for Mason Margiela, and he featured corsets on many of the models, and these sort of swings from extreme comfort to restriction and style are in our times actually existing at the same time. You see a vast public wearing comfortable clothes still, and you see celebrities performing in really exaggerated performance style wear costumes. And there's a lot of independence right now, a lot of personal identity and a lot more leeway to be what you want to be, I think, than there ever has been to adopt the style that you want to have. Yeah. And the big thing about fashion is that there's always something to learn. And this is why it's a big multi-billion dollar business, because the honest truth, even the top fashion designers don't actually know the future. (laughs) All right. We will leave it there. That is Danita Sewell, Program Director and Fashion Professor at ASU School of Art. Danita, thank you so much for coming in. I appreciate it. You're welcome. All right, that'll do it for this Monday edition of the show. Thank you, as always, so much for listening. For Lauren Gilger, I'm Mark Brody. Have a terrific rest of your day. Hope to have you right back here tomorrow.